listening to the Hell on Wheels podcast with your host, Jason Hallman. We in Clinton Township? Clinton Township. Clinton Township. 20 miles north of Detroit. Yeah, it's still the Motor City though, right? Still the Motor City. Right? East Side. Yeah. Um, so, uh, here's how this is going to go. I'm going to, we're going to talk a little bit and I'm going to, I don't know if you, have you ever done anything like this before? No. Okay. Um, I quit listening to terrestrial radio just because I got tired of all the politics and all the commercials and stuff. So I wanted to put something together that was um, – it could be organic where conversations could occur and about things that are important to you and important to me and uh, you know, um, put it out there for – because there's not a lot of podcasts. I've checked. There's not a lot of podcasts for motorcycles. There's a guy named Dean Del Rey in uh, California that has some motorcycle stuff on there every once in a while. And I'm not going to be exclusively motorcycles, but I know that you have, because um, I know you have a background um, in cars too, long before the motorcycle thing. I think you were into Corvettes, were you not? Yeah, a lot of different muscle cars, you know, played around with them. Like pretty much anybody from my era up here in this town, everybody had cars, you know. Right. I, and, you know, um, I'm teaching school in, in Florida now, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to, number one, get people to understand uh, is that. When you're from Detroit, it's not – you're not – you have gearheads up here, obviously, that are people that are absolutely full throttle into into the, the car thing. But you're kind of – you grew up in an environment where you're kind of immersed in it. Yeah, what's – when you think about it, I mean, being, you know, the Motor City, uh, besides the big three that were so prominent here, there's – at one time there was a machine shop, you know, every quarter mile – for 30 miles and so and all these little machine shops are filled with guys that in their spare time played with cars and you know when they weren't building parts for cars they were working on their own cars and yeah you know that's funny you say that because i think everybody had every town had a machine shop that all the racers hung out in where you went to to get that part made that, that didn't there's a guy in my town named dave jarvis who you may know who this guy is only from the sheer fact that he's got a a full-size GMC van that runs nine seconds and does wheelies, and he drives it to Milan. I mean, the guy's the guy's an absolute, absolute head case, but he's because he drives a van that goes nine seconds in the quarter mile. But you know, those types of guys were not uncommon. Well, I mean, you know, I had a customer come in from St. Louis, and uh, uh, he's a Mopar guy. I did a frame for him, and he came in in the morning, dropped off the frame, and said, "Well, I'm going to spend the day touring." You know, I got to go down and see Lynch Road because, you know, he's a uh, roadrunner guy, whatever. And um, so it was a big, big deal to him. I mean, and I can think of, I can probably name you a dozen people that I know, buddies of mine, that all own roadrunners or satellites or, you know, kudas. I mean, it's just common. But for him, it was like, this was the holy grail. Yeah, you know, I was at a car show in Florida a couple weeks ago. There was two guys there with AAR kudas. And... They were not the cars that were getting the attention. And I'm thinking, I've never been around a AAR Cuda. And here's two sitting in the parking lot. I went to school with a guy who drove one every day to high school. Yeah, these guys were talking my ear off because I had, I said, these are these numbered cars? I mean, this is a real deal? Or is these stickers? And he's like, no, no, they're both AAR Cuda. They're both real deal, you know? They had the 346 packs and, and the whole deal on it. So nobody there was getting it, you mean? No, it was just yeah. like it, it went right over their heads, you know? And literally, they were... There was probably 200 cars at the car show. These guys were in like an offshoot parking lot parked next to each other, obviously because they're the only two AAR Cudas I would imagine in Florida. But 
it was uh, nobody. It didn't show up on anyone's radar. I mean, everybody was looking at the tuner cars and the, you know. But, you know, that's the natural progression. I mean, go to any, you know, you go to a high school back in the 70s or even early 80s, and there was loads of really nice cars. I mean, that you t to this day, you'd, you'd still look at them and say, well, that's a really a cool car. You know, it's something special. And today it's not like that. It's totally different. But it's just the progression. It's what the kids, just the way things were. Those crazy kids. <laughs> yeah, I just drove a, a, a 2007 Corvette with about 450 horse with a six-speed. And if you look out front, you'll see the black strip all the way across my parking lot from it. I mean, there's legitimate cars now. You know, it's they're better than they were then, but just different. Yeah, it's not, in, in you know, me not being up here now as much as I used to be. Um, I just, you know, I'm trying to teach. I'm trying to teach people. You know, I teach auto mechanics at school, and I run an auto academy. So these kids are signing up for this four-year academy program where they've got to be, I mean, I'm talking, you know, I get them engaged and, and I, I want them to understand that being a car guy, it's not something that you punch a clock to do. You and I grew up, if we were car guys, it was, that's kind of what, what we were. Yeah, it controls everything. I mean, you're, you know, you're always thinking, I'm sure it's the same for people in other, you know, uh, whether you're into sports or whatever. I'm sure they have the same kind of mindset, but you're right. I mean, if you're a gearhead you know, uh, it's just like, uh, you know, motorcycles are my real passion, but, you know, when you, you go down to a local cruise night or something and someone pulls in in a 32 Ford that's, you know. That's proper. Oh, it, I mean, it, I, I, yeah, I'm a bike guy, but, man, that car's awesome, you know. I'm right. Um, you had a, you, you were an industrial fabricator? Yeah, I spent, you know, 26 years uh, doing industrial was it for one firm? or was Yeah, it? I graduated high school and I kind of, you know, before I was even 18, I worked for this place and uh, it was a good company. It was the, probably the most powerful fabricator of its kind in the area for, you know, a long, long time. Did they survive the, the, this, this no, town? No, unfortunately they didn't. I, after I left, uh, they went just almost a full year and then uh, they were out of business and, and they celebrated their 50th year. You know, so it's with a going out of business thing, you know, and that that's another story that people don't get from that aren't from here. We all knew job shops that are not here anymore that were that were good, that were good companies. Yeah, there was a time when, I mean, pretty much, I, I think, uh, I think if you know the Motor City, Detroit, whatever, would we could have geared up and built space shuttles, and we probably could have been pumping them out, you know, one a day if we wanted to, because the talent was here and the the equipment, the knowledge, the, the people. Yeah, you know, I, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking the other day, there are no, the captains of industry today don't, to me, don't sell a product that, that really, uh, what, what are you going to do to change? I mean, you look at a guy like Henry Ford. You know, I mean, the, the farmer son of a farm, you know, or the son of a farmer in Dearborn, and I know it was a long time ago, um, but we're talking about the guy that revolutionized how they build iPods. You know, there is no, there, that doesn't exist anymore. What's the next thing? Who's going to, what's the next mousetrap that we need? Where does it go? Well, it's technology based. I mean, you know, hard mechanical things, you know, that like the industrial age is kind of, you know, I guess passed us by. But I mean, when you, if you look, there's a, I've got a valve cover from a, uh, Allison aircraft engine hanging on my wall over there. It's mm -hmm. magnesium. 
if you hold the part, it probably weighs maybe a pound. It's a casting, and it was made from patterns that guys lifted the lines off of a drawing, made patterns for the castings. The drawings were done by hand, you know, in a, with a painstaking process. Um, that today, you know, as long as it took the engineer to make that part, it could probably be done in two days now with today's technology. It probably took that guy two weeks. But the point is, we started building, uh, you know, World War II. We went from zero to producing the, the, the baddest fighter aircraft in the world in a matter of months. I mean, literally, maybe a year. Right. And, you know, because we had technology, you know, we had manpower <clears throat> brains, people that were willing to work and do things. And even without the kind of technology we have today, we were doing it. I feel like we taught the entire world how to pretty much pretty kick much we, our ass. Pretty much we did, you know, and you know then we sat back and didn't continue. We just, you know, whether we rested on our laurels or maybe it just went, you know, um, hungrier nations got a hold of it. You know, we had our, you know, we, we, we're there. We, we've got all that, you know, so we're not as, we weren't as hungry to, to jump in and, you know, like these other places were, you know, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, wherever that are producing stuff now. Well, in, in that, that is a perfect segue to talk about, you know, the industry that you and I are in. I mean, we both have different demons that we fight on a regular basis. I fight the internet on, you know, retail sales side of things. I just had a guy come to my shop today. I got a text, you know, here I am on vacation. I got a guy I've been working with for two months on doing a, you know, a custom front end and wheels and stuff. And the guy stops in to my shop while I'm gone and shows off the wheel in the front end that he got, you know, basically shopped me shopped every shop in town and took the deal or not deal, whatever. I mean, you know, perception is reality. Took that to somebody else, and I roadmapped what that person needed to do to, to outsell me. You know what I mean? And where you are creating product and literally probably have sold product to people that have copied your shit and made it overseas oh. for half the price. Yeah, yeah. It happens, and, it, you know, it's a... Uh, I mean, everything I make is done here. I, I don't make every single piece, okay? I, uh, the smart thing to do, um, if I had a piece of equipment, if I had a high-speed lathe and um, a screw machine and a CNC mill and a laser and a water jet and every component, I'd probably have about $4 million in capital expenditures just to be able to manufacture all the parts. So what do I do? Each step, you know, every component... There's a, there's a machine that can make that component really fast. So I see, being from Detroit, we've got a lot of resources. I seek out a lot of those guys. So um, when, I, when I produce a given part, it may have seven different items put together to make that part, to make that little assembly, and they may come from two or three different people, two or three different places where I stop in in the morning to pick up the parts, have a coffee with the owner, find out about his kids. You know, I mean, it, it's a... There's a whole network of people, right. and, uh, but it comes at a cost because even though I'm com manufacturing all these components the fastest way possible from the least expensive vendors available, they're not going to compete with somebody in China. So the guy who takes my part, my little assembly, knocks it off and has it made over in China, hey, he's, he's living large. Well, I'm scraping, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing okay, but I'm, you know... I'm driving an old van that's rusted out. No, right. I mean, I don't know how. There's no. I, I don't feel like there's a way to fix that. I feel like we got to just we got to just 
bury that, you know, bury that deep down inside, forget about it and, and move on. And it's just like the guy with the wheels today. You know, he spent another 45 minutes at the shop while Big Rick is quoting the next job that he's going to shop somewhere else. You know, I, I don't feel like we have to be, I don't feel like you have to be in business to undersell yourself. I don't feel, you know what I mean? Like, I, where does it, as a consumer, where do you find yourself, you know, it's the Walmart thing. I, I hate Walmart. And, and, I, and I won't go there unless I absolutely have to or unless I need something crappy. But, but the problem is, sooner or later, you're going to have to go there. Why? Because you're not going to be able to go support the mom and pop shop to buy a sweater from some retailer or whatever because it's 35 bucks. Right. And you can go to Walmart and get a $6 sweater, and that's what you're going to do because that's all you're going to be able to afford. Yeah, and 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 that th- therein lies the the problem that we have is that you know again I don't see any way to I don't see any quick way. There's not any you know any writing on the wall that says well you know if we do this and this you know then we're going to be fine. I mean I think we have to no it's it's the, it's here to stay. It's not going away. So what do you do? Okay, this is a this is a big dilemma for me personally, and uh, I know we you know I've discussed it with you before. I'm not likely to change. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna start buying components overseas for my product. It, it's. It, I really would rather just move on and do something else before I do that. But, but back up for a minute. Um, you know, my family. Uh, I've got three kids, college age kids. Uh, um, you know, my wife works, and we live at a certain level. Okay, right. and, and it's it's not poverty. Believe me, um, we're doing okay. However, I see people that are taking the step to go overseas, have things done, and they're living large. So now, uh, as a manufacturer and a business owner, you look at your own situation and say, well, wait a minute, am I really, am I cheating my family by not doing that? Because my family could have a lot, be a lot better off, you know? My, my kids could be driving cars that aren't rusted out, you know, 180,000 mile cars. Um, but don't you think that, just stop on something like that, don't you think that kind of like that's a character building exercise? You know, I mean, driving a 180,000-mile car that's, that has the potential of breaking down on you, doesn't that build character? For sure. Absolutely it does. And and you know what? There's people that don't have a car. Right. So, you know, I mean, that, you're, you're exactly right. But at what point do you say, you know what? Um, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's really hard not – it's hard to blame some people that are throwing their arms up saying, okay, I give in. I'm going to start doing it. Because, you know, they're um, well, here, a struggle. Yeah, and, and here in, herein lies the part where, talk, where you talk about ethics and, and morality and things. Then have design your own parts and have them made over in China. Don't copy my parts oh, yeah, and well, have them made over in China. Okay. I mean, you're, you're, you know, I mean that's, that's the thing, and that's what I'll say to guys out there that are – that, that are doing that, and right. they know who they are, and that probably I, I would hope to th- I would like to think that at some point in time they land uh, across this podcast and hear this and start yelling into their into their radio. You know what I mean? Because well, they know who they are. Very true. Okay, I guess there is a big difference if you if you create something in your mind, and um, this is a new product, and maybe you you develop it here. Okay, now the only way for me to make money is to have it made overseas. Fine. Now I go and steal Jason's product. And say, wow, Jason's making it here, and he's he's selling these things for sixty bucks. I'm getting them made overseas, and I'll be able to sell them for thirty, 
and I'll make 25 on each one. Well, that really sucks. And here's the other thing. You know, everybody blames China. Blame China. Blame China. Guess what? The Chinese guy didn't come over here and steal my part. It was another fellow American. That oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's what's really hard. I mean, uh, I've had uh, some big-name players buy my parts, and next thing you know, it shows up on their... Uh, it shows up on their internet site or on, on eBay under their name, and they're not even being made here, you know. And uh, you, you know, how do you blame the Chinese guy? He's over there. He's working. He's got a job. He's trying to feed his family. Whatever. Yeah, and and I and I and, and I don't blame. I really don't blame that person. I don't think that you know that that person has any scope or magnitude of. of no idea how it, how it yeah. affects us. Not that he would care anyway, but really, it doesn't matter to him. Somebody's telling him to make this piece, he's making it. Yeah, He doesn't exactly. know what it does. He's not looking for, you know, there are different patent laws and things like that. And, you know, our, the, the problem that I have with a lot of it is our government is not set up in such a way that you can, um, you can even uh, reasonably go after somebody for that. It's impossible. And it's impossible to protect yourself. If you design, if you design a product that everybody on the planet wants and has to own and you're going to stand to make millions from it it's worth patenting if you've got a product that you're going to sell for 50 bucks and you're going to sell 100 of them a year or 200 a year it's not worth patenting because by the time not only after you patent it you're going to have to protect that patent and if, unless you unless you've got the deep pockets to protect it and fight it mm -hmm. you're going to lose anyway so what's the difference right most of your stuff comes out of either your necessity or a necessity of a client. Is it? Is it, that's fair to say, right? Um, you mean the the I, design aspect? The design, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's very organic the way you come up with designs. I mean, you don't sit down and go, "Hey, I need to find a, a, a new way to make brakes because the way I'm doing brakes isn't working." You find a caliper that you want to use that makes sense, and you find a way to make that. Yeah, or I'll take any given thing. Uh, you know, one of my early parts were my uh, seat hinges with the little bearings and little right. stainless steel shafts. They're used on a, a sprung seat uh, that you would put on a hardtail so that your seat is really your only suspension. Well, everything that was out there when I started was um, a real simple, cheap that Taiwanese part. stamp steel, chrome-plated shit. They last for about 600 miles, and they're broke. Mm -hmm. I came up with one that was real high-end, and um, it'll last forever, and it'll give you a fantastic ride. You know, there yeah. really is no difference, but that's the... Uh, that's the mother. That's that's where it comes from. That's the, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So right. you, you have a problem. If you need to solve it, once you solve it, there's your invention. Right. I you know I mean that that that's very that's uh, I don't know that and I happen to know that that's the product that that sees more um, probably copying of yours than, than anybody else. I could probably name two or three manufacturers, that, oh, and I won't, but, the, yeah. you know, that it's out there. And it's, you know, it's not to add salt to a wound. It's what, the, what, even, what, what adds a bigger insult is, uh, it, this is this is simple, and it, uh, the, I, I make a little product that um, attaches to um, the cross tube on a frame to um, hold the seat springs. Right. It's a little weld-on assembly. It's got a little leather washer and a little clip. I started making these back in, I, I'm thinking about 2002, 2003, mm -hmm. okay? I'm not going to say that nobody ever did it before. I never saw anything like it. Right. And I really doubt if anybody ever did with a little washer like I do. Now, I'll bet you there's 50 people on eBay selling them. And I even got into an argument with somebody that insisted that I wasn't the first guy to make it. 
And I mean, it's it's so ridiculous. I was selling them through Custom Chrome. Now, I guess we don't have any manufacturer, but still, it, people, you know, uh, <laughs> that's really hard to take. I mean, right. You know, and it's not. Uh, this isn't you know this isn't a cure for cancer deal. It's just a little part that people buy and use. However, it's my part. I developed it. It's mine. You know. Yeah, and if you look at, I mean, it's fair to say that there's, um, you know, this is a, you, you squeeze a lot of energy. I don't think you could get much more energy out of the, the space that you're in here. I mean, you've got every every square inch of this place is is spoken for in one way, shape, or another, and it's all business. I mean, there's not there's there is no. Uh, you know, the day that during the chopper days where you had the, not you, but people had the velvet couch with the uh, embroidered logo on it, and, you know, the, the sitting room where you could come in and hang out. I mean, stripper pole. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, you've always been a little bit more humble than, than the next guy, but, um, you know, people need to understand too that this is a, this is a true American enterprise and it is what it is. I mean, you know, you're not, and you don't, I've had you tell me that you can't do certain things because it didn't, you weren't happy, you weren't confident in the way it would come out before. Yeah, I, I turned on a lot of business and I'm sure other people are the same, but you know, if I, um, uh, if a customer comes to me with an idea, they want me to make something, if it, if it doesn't fit my idea of what is correct, what's safe or anything, I don't, it doesn't matter how much money I, I, I make off of that idea or, you know, to help fulfill that idea for the customer because ultimately when it's going down the road and someone looks at it and says, and it looks like crap. Who the hell made that? That that fifteen hundred bucks that I just made from the guy is yeah. going to cost me ten grand in new business. And yeah, and you have. I mean, you've got an, you're in a unique situation too, where your parts are you're shipping around the world. Are you not? Absolutely, every every day. And you, you go to pretty much every continent. Pretty much anybody that's going to have a motorcycle is probably you know I've shipped something there. Right on. Um, how did the name Fabricator Kevin come about? I, I, I think I know what this is because I think you told me one time, but you had um, you were friends with the late Chet Hall, were you yeah. not? Yeah, I was. I mean, uh, uh, Chet, and to say friends, you know, we weren't, you know, drinking buddies or anything. I was a customer, but I frequented his place a lot, and um, uh, he was a very uh, brash individual. I mean, crass. He, if you... If he didn't like something about you, you were going to know it early on. And if you lasted through his uh, torment every time you came in there, <laughs> you know, you kind of, you know, you became like, I don't know. You had your own place in yeah, there then. exactly. So um, I was a fabricator, and he used to call me Fabricator Kevin, or Kevin the Fabricator. That's what every time I'd come in there, he was always calling me that, so this kind of stuff. Where did your, uh, what was your first... Your first experience with a motorcycle, I mean, what, you know, I think everybody has, everybody can find that, that, that aha moment, you know, I, uh, I can, I can honestly tell you that my, you know, I grew up around it, you know, I grew up, my dad built choppers in our basement and, and showed choppers and, and stuff like that, so I, it's just always kind of been in the background of, of my existence. Where did, where did this all start for you? Where, well, where, where do you draw your, you know? Yeah, I grew up, um, uh, on a street. Uh, that was mostly uh, businesses. There were very few homes in this area. And we were, uh, my dad, uh, my parents owned a, a small boat livery. They rented boats. And it was kind of that, like a marina type area. And there was a, a bar across the street from our house, maybe you know, 100 yards away, that was a, a lot of bikers hung out there. So there were always, as a kid, 
I mean, there were cool choppers up and down my road every day, always, you know, parked this far. And I mean, you know, I was spent, I was in that parking lot checking out bikes, you know, I just loved it. Right. And I mean, I can just remember, uh, you know, two o'clock in the morning when the bar would close in the summertime, you know, I could hear those bikes, you know, two miles when they left the house, you know. Yeah, that's one of my earliest memories. When we moved from, um, my dad did Triumphs. That was my dad's thing. And I think you you may or may not remember this, but um, I've told you this before. Because uh, when I met you in 04, we met in Daytona on Main Street at your booth. You, Billy, and uh, Jose had that little corner there. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking. Indian Larry talk- was across. Yeah, us. Indian Larry was across. And Hank was Hank in Young. that area as well. And I think yeah. the Weld Wheels had like the back corner. Yep. And I remember talking to you about, uh, I had seen the black bike, the black shovel head, and on the cover of the horse. And um, I met you there, and I was talking to you because we were both from Detroit area, and uh, I told you I wanted to do Triumphs. And you're like, ah, oh, you know, that's, there's, I believe you told me they were snotty little bikes, and they were fun to ride, but that, that wasn't really, that wasn't really something that was going to be the, the big draw that the Harleys were, were going to be at. And that, that was always good advice, and I thank you for that, but. Um, I can remember being a kid when we moved from Brightmore to uh, Farmington Hills. We lived at, um, and I know you don't know the west side real well, but Farmington Hills and Grand River. My dad would ride Grand River all the way in to Detroit to where he worked. And uh, I could hear that bike with those straight pipes. What seemed like miles. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it I mean. It sounded so good, too. Yeah. I mean, what's, you know, it sounds great. Yeah. Six, six in the morning. That's what you wake up to is right. hearing dad kick that thing. It's a triumph, so it didn't have a starter. Kicking it in the in the driveway and riding that baby down mm-hmm. Grand River, I could hear that, and I know exactly what you're talking about. What was your first What was your first bike? Uh, I had a Yamaha 60, and I saved. I paid 250 bucks for it. it. It's my first streetable motorcycle, and I didn't really ride it on the street. It was an enduro. Uh, when I turned 16, the day I turned 16. Had a, uh, I bought a uh, Honda 350, mm-hmm. which seemed like everybody's on one of those. A little CB? Yes, yeah, yeah. 350. And so it was my first road bike. And it was a good bike. I mean, you know, at the time I was the king, you know. <laughs> Being the king is good. Yeah. Being the king is good. Yeah, it was pretty quick, too. I mean, uh, for what it was, you know, I guess I was pretty skinny back then, so. That probably helped make it a little faster. And so, from that point on, you've had a you've had a motorcycle no, pretty I much all no, time. I went, I went a number of years without them. I did. Um, you know, we've lived on the. Uh, I've always lived on the water, so I've spent a lot of time on the lake, water skiing and fishing and stuff like that. And um, when my when when I got married and started a family, I didn't have a motorcycle. I, um, you know, I really didn't have a lot of time to mess with it because I tried to you know spend time with the family and whatnot and then when my kids got to be uh, you know started going to elementary school I got back into it nice did you go right to the Harleys or did you I did yeah I I, uh, um, I bought a uh, Road King when they first came out and uh, it was really hard to get a bike at that time I mean I um, you know you couldn't just go to a dealer and buy one and you know used bikes everything was really expensive if you remember like yeah you had to go 90s. through really to get a bike you had to go through a middleman i mean that yeah, was, was the best a, way to get the yeah. only way to guarantee you'd get a bike that's right and that's all you could guarantee you couldn't guarantee the color you couldn't guarantee anything i knew a guy here in in taylor downriver that used to buy 
like uh, probably a dozen at a time from a dealership in in Hawaii. That's what kind of money you could make on a Harley yeah. Davidson. So imagine shipping a motorcycle from Hawaii. What what kind? That of had already been shipped from Milwaukee right. or York, Pennsylvania. Right, right, and the guy was making money doing that. Dude, he was making bank. I had that Road King for a year, and I traded it uh, for a um, uh, 1984 shovelhead that uh, Eric owned for a while, and now my other buddy. That's the black one. Yeah, oh, I didn't know that you've yeah. had. I didn't know that that I, bike I had got, been. Yeah, I owned that bike for a long, long time. In fact, I. I really never thought I would ever sell that bike, and I got an FXR, and yeah, in a moment of weakness, I sold it. And yeah, we've I'll, all I'll done get that. it back one day, though. Yeah. My buddy's my, another <laughs> friend of mine owns it, so sooner or later. Right on. What kind of bikes are you building right now for anybody? Um, I'm, I've got a bike that I'm uh, just getting started for myself. It's it's a uh, going to be an uh, evolution. I got a uh, 1998. Uh, 80 inch Evo, my buddy Dan R just went through. And this is the one it, I'm literally touching it right now, right? Yeah, that's it's, that one. It's, it's going to be. I'm really excited about it. Um, points ignition, a super e carburetor. It's a simple motor. Um, it came out of a tour glide, a road glide, I guess now. And it's I've got an 85 FX wide glide frame, which is a four speed swing arm frame, but I'm going to hardtail it, and it's had some damage, so it needs. Need some love. Need some work, and uh, so you know, I don't feel so bad about cutting it up. I don't ever feel bad about cutting that stuff up. Well, I got over that a long time ago. I mean, I think you kind of have some frames. I don't think should be messed with. You know, if you got yourself a nice, if you found a nice pan frame with sidecar loop still. Yeah. Okay. Well, but that, that's not. I'm, I'm what I'm talking about is you know, like um, I guess putting the brakes on something that that you you want to have. You know, sometimes you've got to make you've got to break a couple of eggs to make an omelet. You <laughs> know what I mean? Absolutely. And every everybody's chair needs to be busted at some point oh, in yeah, time. Yeah. I mean, I get a, you know, uh, I hardtail a lot of shovelhead frames, and uh, uh, I've got kind of like my own way of doing it and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen one of Kevin's frames, and I'm not just trying to to give him props because I happen to be here, um, Kevin's uh, his hardtail his frame hardtail kit. Um, he sell, you sell it in a kit form, do you mm-hmm. not, for the do-it-yourselfer? Yeah, I do. I, but I, you've got a frame jig here that that's... It needs to be assembled in a jig. So, um, you know, I'm real careful about who I sell it to, and only to make sure that... It ends up. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing, someone going down the road. If someone buys a part from you, they're going to tell you, it's a, it, they're going to tell everybody it's a Fabricator Kevin deal. Yeah, I mean, I want to, you know, I want to make sure that if somebody buys uh, something in, that is involved to install as a hardtail kit, but they've got the means to do it and whatnot. Because if you spend, you know, 500 bucks on something and then butcher up your frame trying to make it work because it's above your skill level, you know. What is it, what is it going to set somebody back to send, you know, obviously they have to send it to you and they have to get it sent back, so not that. But what is it going to put somebody back to have a hardtail put on their frame from you? Yeah, well, the way I work it is uh, I charge 550 for the kit. And that includes all the pre-bent tubes, the machine details, uh, a rough a set of plans, and uh, a set of cast steel uh, axle plates, which are cast in the USA, by the way. Cool. And they're replicas of uh, panhead axle plates. Uh, and then I charge an additional 550 for the installation. And uh, when the frame is done, it will, you know, what I like to say is that it's going to look like it came from the factory. And that's, that, I mean, that ultimately, if that's the look you're going for, this is a juice break setup, right? 
Uh, well, it's the the axle plates are mechanical drum plates, but you can okay. run a you know disc brake. You can run a juice drum in it, mm -hmm. um, but it's not going to look like um, if you take a if you take a thousand dollar a frame that's worth a thousand bucks with a mm -hmm. title, and you put a two hundred dollar um, hardtail. Now you got a frame that's worth six hundred bucks. Yeah, because it's a it, you know the, the lines are goofy. It's not strong. It's crappy. Exactly. I, I've seen it. You know, I think we've all. I think the um, there's some good things that have come out of uh, the, the you know that bell curve that went up real real fast around o three o four, um, which is about the time that I got into the industry where there was a lot of people building motorcycles. I mean, there was a lot of people putting motorcycles together. There was a lot of there was you know everybody was I laugh and kid about it now, and you know I don't know where I stand on and. And the pecking order of things, and it really doesn't matter. But there was a lot of people selling T-shirts. <laughs> well, I mean, you know it, what you know, I mean. And and you know what? There were customers for all that stuff. So it's not like everybody popped up and everybody was making money at it. I mean, um, the biker build-offs brought this uh, uh, motorcycle building into the households. You know, and I mean, I, you know, I don't want to say OCC because they're really a kind of a different thing they're more of a children's you know uh, you know they appeal to young kids and stuff like and, that and fat 40 year old white women <laughs> it's, it's different you know but, but I mean you know think back when you had like Indian Larry going against Paul Yaffe and and you know what surprise let's talk about that for a second because I've you know have you gone back and watched any of those biker build offs you know it's been a while I watched I've got a loop going in my showroom and every once in a while I'll throw a DVD in there and um, you know what surprised me about that build-off was that Paul Yaffe didn't know who Indian Larry was. And it, I, this is no shot against anything. This is just to show you how off the radar the motorcycle industry had been. I mean, it didn't, it didn't keep up with the Internet age. Because the Internet, I mean, really, mid-90s, mid you, you started to see some Internet stuff. By the late 90s, there's a lot of people on the internet. Oh yeah, and you know, it, and it didn't uh, it didn't take off until TV, which is an older medium. By that time, TV was 50 years old. I mean, people had relied on that for a, their means of getting new information, information for right. such a long time, yeah. and the internet just kind of took off. And then all of a sudden, you you know, you get websites and TV shows, and I mean, I you know, well, you know that that very show, okay, Paul Yaffe and Indian Larry. Um, Paul Yaffe was probably known to ten times the number of people that Larry was known to. Yeah. I, I'm going to say. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's in the right. He's doing big fat tire bikes, all the, you know, the pro street, and he's in all the magazines. I mean, uh, and for all intents, let's, he was in the right part of the country too to to yeah, sell yeah. to have a 12 month business Absolutely. and have people who had money to pay for that kind right, of stuff. Right, right, and and uh, um, you know, his style is his style. You know. He does have a style too, and it's it, it's uh, not hateful. I'm just going to say I'm going to go on record and say it's not hateful at all. It's actually very clever. No, no, he's got it going on. Okay, now, like for me, when uh, you know when I heard that Indian Larry was going against him, uh, you know, I felt like, well, man, you know, I know how this is going to go down. You know, no way is he going to be able to beat him. And then I saw the bike before the, and I'm like, wow, you know. Man, he really, you know, Larry uh, really hit it hard, yeah. you know. And when he won, it was like 
damn, you know, it's like the little, uh, you know, it was like for all the little chopper guys all over the place, the man, you know, now it, it almost gave you like that crazy inspiration. How do you, um, how do you, when you look back on things and obviously, you know, Indian Larry's no longer with us and, um, guys like Johnny Vasco are gone as well. Um, when you two terrible huge losses, uh, Johnny was. Uh, I, I I only got to meet him one time. It was at the Spoke. It was uh, Daytona in two thousand five, and uh, he was on that Camel Roadhouse tour that year. Oh, yeah, yeah. With him and Roland and uh, we, yeah, and we were all just kind of hanging out uh, uh, at a party at the Broken Spoke, and Johnny was probably out of everybody there. He was the most chilled out, relaxed dude. Yeah. He was uh, really a good guy. You know, him and Larry, Andy and Larry, had really a, a lot of the same philosophies. And, and what is important is their feelings, both of those guys uh, were, you know, there's plenty of food in this business for all of us to eat. As long as nobody gets greedy, everybody can make a living and everybody can do it. And, you know, there are guys uh, that want to be like the one-man machine and, you know, knock stuff off like we were just talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it kind of screws up the whole, you know, the whole balance of everything. But The thing I liked about, and I, I want to get back to my original point too, but the thing I liked about both of those guys is they appreciated having other people's parts on their bikes. Oh, and yeah. when they did, they made sure that that person got full credit. Oh, yeah. For, Robert Pradke got full credit for painting that bike. Absolutely. Um, you know, C.J. Allen got full credit for doing the engraving on those bikes. To the point of bringing him on the show so that he could get FaceTime on the camera. Yeah, and these are these are guys that... I, I, far be it from me to say that these guys don't exist anymore, because I think they do. But I think the people like that that exist have taken their bat and their ball, and they've gone home, and they've just said, piss on, on all of this other foo-foo stuff that's going on, and they're not... They're not interested in exposure. I mean, you take a guy like, and this is a guy that I don't know real well, but I've met, and I, I can't read him. I couldn't read him when I met him. Irish Rich. That's a talented dude. Oh, yeah. With an interesting story. Oh, yeah. And he doesn't mince words with anybody. Yeah, there's... And, you know, I mean, that that is a cat that is extremely... I, I call him... I think he's eccentric to a point where, you know, he, he's got... And that guy's got some interesting stuff, and he just... He's cool doing his own deal. Yeah, he's got a he, he's got a mind like an encyclopedia, and that guy uh, he will he remembers details, fine little minute details on motorcycles that you know were built twenty years ago, thirty years ago, and uh, he's very talented. He's he's that's a guy who's incapable of of um, cutting a corner. No, not gonna happen. I think you know? if you get like, um, a, if there's a lack of anything coming out of him, um, it's for two reasons. One, like you just said, he's not gonna cut a corner, so he's just gonna stop until he figures that out, and he's not gonna, he's not going to broadcast his opinion on on a whole lot of things. No, and uh, I, I, you know something that I find the most interesting thing about him it's it's a stupid little. Uh, Stupid little tidbit. I know what you're going to say. He has never sat on uh, a Japanese motorcycle. He has never ridden anything but an American motorcycle, ever. Now, I'm talking about around somebody's yard. You know, I think, I was thinking about that. 
coming over here and I'm thinking, I wonder if he's ridden. I mean, how do you, I, I love dirt bikes and I had a Suzuki growing up, but how do you not like, I'm thinking, okay, well, he's older than me. So maybe he rode a Hodaka. Maybe he rode a Husqvarna. No, but no, that's no, he hasn't. But yeah, Harley he, made a dirt bike, did they not? Didn't they have a 175 yeah, I, I or something? I don't know if he's ever shit been ridden that. You know, right. I, you know, because I don't think that's his thing. But um, uh, the other thing is he won't even park next to a green motorcycle. <laughs> I think that's awesome. That's, that's kind of funny, dude. Yeah, he, I mean, not only will he not ride one because of the bad luck stigma associated with green motorcycles, but he won't park next to one. Do you know, um, a friend of, of mine uh, lives in Atlanta and... His buddy owns Irish's Irish Rich's uh, CFL. Oh, really? Yeah, I got a picture of that on my wall. Yeah, there. you yeah. do. It's well, it's got bike. some of your parts on it. It's yeah. got. It doesn't have a. It has a seat hinge on it. Yeah, I think uh, the brake system. Yeah, the brakes. I know that for a fact. Yeah. But getting back to what I was saying about Indian Larry, that guy, um, that was not. He's not somebody that you. He didn't have a parts line per se. He had a couple little parts that he he had developed and he made. But that's that's a guy that didn't. He wasn't going around and making a big deal about himself. What's interesting about him is he was a showman. You know, he yeah. loved to, um, I mean, you know, you saw him flying into the lot in the morning, you know, when you're set up there. He's doing burnouts. He's popping wheelies on the way in, you know, slamming on the brakes, sliding. But he didn't get off and do the dance like an NFL, uh, you know, receiver that just scored a touchdown. No, right. You know, he did his thing, but he didn't think he was. He didn't run around, you know, blabbing his mouth that he was all that. You know, I mean, if you saw the guy, uh, you know, stand up and ride down the road on his seat, you know, yeah, he did it. He didn't have to. That's it. Did you see it? I just did it. I'm not going to tell you about it. Yeah, you just but saw it. And if you, you missed it, eh, maybe I'll do it again sometime. You'll get to see it. You know he, what I mean? He was he, when it, he was here or he was at Eric's? Uh, Remember when he, he came here in 03? Well, he actually went to... Um, he did a thing over at Boomers, right? Yeah, he did at Boomers, and he, I think, uh, met up at Finch's. Okay. That's where it was. And then we all kind of rode out there and met him out there. Uh, Eric may have rode with him from Finch's place. So I thought there was a picture of him somewhere, somewhere along the line, either with you and you and he or he and Eric or something like that. But I, I know that he had he had been to the Detroit area for that Boomers yeah. thing. and. Billy was with him as well. Yeah, that's right. So, who's another another guy that I think is, I, I certainly hope that he makes a full oh, yeah. recovery in the industry, and and I think he's innovative. I, I you know, I mean, I know that he's there's some people that say some negative things about about him, but yeah, I, well, I think that he's done his. You know, there are his, some people uh, on this earth that probably can walk on water, and they can probably say something about a guy like an Billy. indiscretion that somebody's done. Yeah. But uh, I'm not one of them, and I, I can't wait for him to get back. And, uh, you know, what he did, um, the bike he built in prison, uh, is awesome. It, I mean, that bike is You know, it's, it, it's nothing short of incredible when you look at the kind of tools he had to do, yeah. do it with. And under the time constraints and under the, all, of the, all the things he had, you know, given that whole set of circumstances. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, uh, I was impressed by it. I, I, and, you know, I think he's got a, a really a great eye, and I... No, I can't wait to see him back and I'm looking forward to it. You're still writing for, uh, you still write pretty regularly for the horse. You do a tech article. Yeah. Um, do you, how, how, how do you plan those tech articles? I mean, does it just, you pick something that you're doing or, you know, I mean, do you find yourself running out of, ever running out of ideas for that kind no, of thing? You know, um, I thought when I started doing it that I never would run out of, you know, 
lot of ideas. And at times, you know, um, it it's I try to make I try to vary what I write about. I, I don't want to I don't want to make three oil tanks in a row or right. do something. So you know, in that re, in that regard, it's it um, requires some thought. But the staff there is uh, so cool. I, I mean, I heard that their office manager. I haven't met her yet, but I heard she's real easy on the eyes. Oh, she's smoking hot. Yeah, she is smoking <laughs> hot. <laughs> Everybody there is. Uh, they're good people, and you know what? They're. Um, I think what makes the magazine do so well is uh, uh, Hammer uh, has a group of people, and he lets them do. Leaves them alone. You know, everybody kind of knows what goes, and what flies, and what doesn't, but. Um, he trusts everyone to submit what they think uh, the readers will like. As an example, about two two years ago, around Christmas time, I did a tech article about. I took a um, a friend of mine who's a quadriplegic, uh, myself and and his father, uh, built a sidecar rig so that he could ride with his dad on a bike, mm -hmm. and he's. Um, it's to the point where he literally had to have his helmet strapped in place to hold it. I mean, he, you know, yeah, he's got he's no, and, no uh, faculties at all. Right. Nothing to do with choppers, nothing, you know, and, uh, I, I helped him do this. I took pictures along the way and I, I said to Hammer, I said, you know, I was kind of thinking about art, you know, doing an article about this. He said, yeah, do it. I mean, for sure do it. And what's crazy is I probably got more, uh, mail and letters, positive comments about that article than any I've ever done. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know where, and not to get all like heady on you, but I don't know where people sit, and it really doesn't matter where people sit on religion and things like that, but I believe that there's a force in the universe that drives a lot of things, and it's karma. And, you know, I think sometimes the karma bus parks out in front of my house in particular and, ha you know, and hands me a ration of shit from time to time, but I really feel like the more energy I put out there that's positive, the more I get back. And, and you know, it, you, you're, that doesn't fit the demo of what the horse is, but it does. Because well, the horse the is a lot of real people yeah, here's, that are here's, doing real things. Here's the way I, I, I pitched it in the article. Um, you know, Stampede guys, you know, uh, Charlie the Nomad and, mm -hmm. and all the guys who do the Stampede who are totally awesome, you know, they'll ride... Uh, 3,000 miles in 40 hours, you know, 3,500 miles in 40 hours. Uh, for my buddy Matt, um, he rode from Alpena home, 400 miles. That's hardcore. I mean, this guy can't, when he's sitting in his, when he's tucked in that sidecar, he can't adjust himself. Like, if he's got a draft down his neck, there's nothing he's going to do about it. He's got to suck it up. All right. So, you know, that kid was tough to take, you know, to, to, to make a trip that long in a, in a sidecar. Yeah. I, I mean, that's hardcore. Yeah. I, I think everything is, um, you know, one of the things that, and this is, it's unrelated to, to the grand scheme of what we're doing, but I have a rule in my classroom that I'm trying to implement with the kids, and I call it my 300% rule. And it means that you're giving 100% of your effort to 100% of what you're doing 100% of the time and it's a 300% rule, and it's not about doing your best every time. It, 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 it's not doing you know what someone else considers the best. It's doing what you can to the best of your ability yeah. at that time. You know, because sometimes you can't. Sometimes 100% of what you give is 
50% of what you could give yesterday or 200% of what you can give tomorrow. That's right. So, I mean, you know, when you, when you keep a 300% rule in, in that stuff and you try to implement that into your business and in the, in the way you do stuff, you know, I think that, you know, and that's a good example of it. I mean, that's given a, that, that was a 300% day for that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so uh, it is a, it's a great magazine to write for. And uh, I, I really, en- I, I really enjoy it. Uh, it's been one of the most positive things probably to happen to me as far as what I get out of it compared to what I put into it, you know? Right. I mean, um, where do you see, we used to talk all the time and you, and you know, I've said to you a million times, you could live in the Fiji islands. And as long as you could ship your parts out, the amount of real estate that you occupy here to, to do what you do, you could do it anywhere. Yeah. But, instead of, you mean, I don't have to be manufacturing here in Detroit. Well, no, I'm saying that you physically don't need to be here in Detroit. Right, right. Um, you could be anywhere in the world because right. your business is not here. Where is your business yeah, at these that's days? That's what's funny. You know, locally, I, I, I don't even I don't advertise locally. I don't do a lot locally because I do more business. I do five times more business in New York than I do in Michigan. Okay, I do more business in Texas than I do in Michigan. Um, that's so, interesting because there's a couple of people down in in Texas that do kind of what you do. Yeah, and, you know, keep in mind, I mean, I'm not building a bike and sending to Texas, but I'm sending parts to Texas that are going on bikes that people are building in Texas. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can build you can build two bikes a year and make two people happy or sell 2,000 parts a year and network with 2,000 people. So, you know, it's a little different. But um, like my buddy Eric from Voodoo, his, his specialty is building custom bikes and building yeah. the machine. So for him, local is good. Not that he doesn't build for people out of state because he does, but yeah, I mean, well, it's definitely, I mean, I think there's an investment. <clears throat> That's one of the things that, and maybe we should touch on that is that, you know, you have, uh, you have a unique position because of you're a, a bit of an enigma in the industry is that not everybody knows you, but everybody kind of knows of you that they don't know, you know, especially kind of that that chopper bobber builder group of people, um, there's some investment in time that has to be put in. When you're building a bike, it's not something that happens overnight. I mean, you certainly, you know, if you've got enough handmade stuff on it, and that's what building a bike is, let's be honest. I mean, building a bike to me isn't, I've always told people I'm not, I'm not a builder. I'm, I'm, I can assemble a bike as good as anybody can. I can fix a bike, but I'm, I'm not a true builder. You couldn't lock me in a room yet where, with raw materials, or I haven't tried it, you know, well, you where could. you can build See, that's, everything. That, that's a great point, okay? That, um, here's a perfect analogy. You could put me in a room of 100 people up on a stage and tell me to make them laugh, okay? <laughs> Unless I fell off the stage, they might not laugh. You could go into a room... Uh, of a hundred people and have them fall all over themselves, okay? Because it's your nature. It's it's a skill that you have that you can't you can't learn it, okay? Right. But my skills can be learned, okay? You say you couldn't fabricate and build a bike. Not true. If you want to, and you put the time to learn all the aspects, of course you could. It's it's repetition. It's 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 knowledge. Could you become a could you become a, a um, scratch golfer? Maybe not. But could you become a good golfer? 
Yeah. Do you even golf? I don't know. I no, don't know. no I, I swore that I would never right. swing it. But if you decided you wanted to, I'll bet you could probably get pretty good at it if you if you played three times a day. And, you know, I mean, it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things, one of my character flaws is anytime I see anybody do anything, and it doesn't matter what it is, I have this tendency where I'm like, I instantly start sizing up whether or not I can do that. And, you know, when I go over and watch a guy like, um, I have... I haven't watched you work. I mean, we haven't been in a situation where I've been over there just kind of chilling while you're working. But I, I've had the—I've actually had the privilege of working with Eric for a very long time, and uh, I watch the way he works and I watch the way he manipulates things. And my brain only can—I, you know, I look at that and I get scared. I get actually—I get like this fear, this anxiety, and I, I shut down over yeah, that no. thing. Because, you know, but at the same time, I, I could get in front of, I could walk out on stage in front of a bunch of people and throw up on myself and, and eventually get that. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I don't think, so I that's never. A, that's a, you know, uh, the ability to paint the Mona Lisa. Yeah. No matter how hard I practiced, I probably could never paint the Mona Lisa. Maybe right. I could get pretty good. But, but um, part of my job as uh, writing tech articles for the horse, or, and it's not my job, it's my no, own personal vendetta, is right. my own personal goal is to um, give people the confidence to do it because they can do it if you want to do it. Welding, TIG welding. Can anybody do it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely anybody can. You're not going to pick one up and start laying down beads by tomorrow. Not going to happen. No. But but can you learn it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as an industrial fabricator, I spent most of my time as in the engineering department. You know, I was director of engineering. Well, very little time was spent fabricating. Right. I learned it on my own. And I'm going to tell you right now, the, t the type of work that I do, of all the men that I work with all those years in the industrial world, only a handful could come and do this. And I'm, let me qualify it. It's not because I'm a, a metal god. Absolutely not. It's because I took the, I had the passion to do it. And my name is resting on how my parts are produced and what they look like. So I had a good reason to become the best welder I could be. And anybody with enough time and enough energy and drive can do it. Do you have, do you have an engineering degree? I do not. Do you, um, where does, and this is a good point because, you know, I mean, obviously the, the, motor, the, um, the motorcycle industry hasn't seen the same kind of attrition that we've seen in the automotive industry where things shrunk up and, and dried up a little bit. I mean, motorcycle has seen attrition, but not in the same way to where you didn't have a bunch of engineers that were documented, degreed engineers that lost their job in the motorcycle industry like you saw in the car industry. So my question is, is when you looked at the unemployment line three years ago, it was full of white-collar people that their toolbox consisted of a, a ballpoint pen and a checkbook and guys that could work kind of, they did. Yeah. Why, why, I don't understand why that, where there's that disconnect where the valuation of somebody's ability to contribute. Well, here's a lot, a lot of, a lot of the reason that these engineering people were getting laid off with the internet. You could take a project and a, an engineering team could develop the concept and then that concept can be electronically transmitted over to India, and they can put 20 guys on it for two bucks a day, and 
dissect everything and make it all work out, and then, bang, it's done. Instead of paying, you know, and, and those men over there and women that were doing it in India were degreed. They weren't, it's not like they were a bunch of idiots. All right. They worked just as hard to get their degrees, you know, but I mean, it's our own, again, we're going back to what our own problem is here without... Uh, we went from being um, a consumer producer to being a consumer, and and we've got to find that we've got to find a new happy medium where we're where we're producing and consuming it at levels that the rest of the world is. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it goes back to uh, guys, you know, shops uh, like mine of the size of mine and the sales volume of mine that uh, uh, stay here and they continue to uh, push work to other small shops in the area and let everybody get a little piece of the pie instead of saying, hey, guess what? All you little guys that are helping me out here um, that are giving me parts every week and whatnot, you're all done because now I'm going to China so I won't be seeing you around. It's been nice doing business with you. Got to stop that. Can't let that stuff happen, right? Well, you know, I mean, there's there's builders that we both know that um, that make sure that there's a part of, of yours, part of Eric's, part of Steve's or Dan's on every bike they build at some point in time. And as long as I think we keep doing that, we've got a good network of guys that oh. that treat each other that good. Here's here's the thing, okay? As a small parts manufacturer, my biggest benefit is. My consumer base is probably the most patriotic consumer left in the United States. More motorcycle builders uh, are happy to buy an American product for their bike than an imported product. Not everyone is, not every builder feels that way, not every bike owner feels that way, but a larger percentage. Uh, if, you, if you were to go to boaters, you know, I do, I do some... Um, I have some products that I make uh, since we're near the water here. You know, I, I make some stuff for boats, and those guys really don't care. And and a lot of the guys that don't care are big money guys that are making a lot of money probably by outsourcing stuff. I don't know. But how do you a, how do you feel about? Um, and and this may be a, a Pandora's box, but I hopefully not. I think you've probably got a good quality opinion of it. Um, since you're you're a car guy and you grew up in this area and you know at one point in time you're a car guy rather and you grew up in this area you could put GM Ford or Chrysler on the front of a business that worked on that sold speed parts or did this or that or the other thing but if you put Harley Davidson on the front of your motorcycle business they instantly send you a cease and desist yeah that's um, that's interesting and you gotta look at it from their aspect okay let's just say I'm uh, building uh, a quality piece and I put a Harley logo on it, okay? And it looks real cool. First of all, it's not my logo. I'm putting that logo on there to make money because mm -hmm. people are going to buy that part. If, if I build a fancy toolbox and I put Harley on it, they're going to buy it because that cool Harley sticker on there. Well, that's not right, okay? It's not my logo. Right, but how? what about the, 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 the advent of um, not in that context? Let's think in a little bit different context. I work on Harleys. My shop works on Harleys. So I put if I'm selling Kirby, yeah, yeah, uh, you can't. I, put, I guess I'm, I work I, on Harley Davidson. You can put I work on Harley Davidson. You can't put a bar and shield. I got to cease and desist for right. a bar and shield though. Yeah, 
Uh, I mean, it, 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 to me, it's chicken shit, but I get, I get it because it's yeah. the law. But yeah. at the same time, it's, um, you know, it's to me, I feel like Harley is is a big company that's run still with small minds. That's just the way I kind of feel about it. And um, you know, some of the way they you know, some of the way they go about doing some things and and whatnot. I mean, let's face it, they're when they're crazy successful, you know, they're, they're nuts. Uh, but we can, you know, I've got a few opinions on them. I do too. And I mean, you know, I mean, I, I tell everybody they're not a motorcycle company. They sell unfinished motorcycles to 10 years ago. Well, they're finished, but they know, you know, they, they push that, Hey, let's make it your own kind of deal. But as long as you buy it in our parts department, yeah. which 10 years ago, every part hanging on their wall was made in America. Finding a made in America, Harley accessory today. No, you're hard pressed. Right. You're very hard pressed. How, I mean, how do they go to how do they go to sleep at night pushing the American dream? I think they sleep in Harley. very I Let's, think they sleep in very expensive beds and yeah, very expensive homes. There we go. That's what, you know. I mean. So uh, if and, I, and let's say this when they dis, when they made that decision to go overseas and get all those parts made, it wasn't because they had three bad quarters in a row. They were coming off of three of the best quarters they ever had. When's the last time Harley went backwards? Uh, in maybe recently they have. But. Well, yeah, I think two years ago they kind of went back. They went a little wonky, but then they okay. opened up the markets in India. Okay, but I mean, go back to 1992. Start uh-huh. there, and let's see how many quarters didn't beat the previous quarter. So why did they decide to start? Going oh, I think all they start China? smelling their own farts, and they, you know what I mean. I, Everybody I likes to smell their own. I farts. mean, there was a, there was a couple of big chroming shops here in Detroit yeah. that just did Harley work that are out of business now because it's being done in China somewhere, and I'm sure it isn't being done as good. I mean, Harley's not stupid. The parts they're getting, they're making sure they're get, you know they're not getting total crap, but they can't possibly be as good as what we were building here. No. Kevin, I can't thank you enough for taking the time from your yes. busy day. Um, I'm sure you need to send me a bill for your time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what you get per hour or what, but I love you to death, man. You're you're a great friend, and uh, I, you know, anything I can ever do for you, you know that that I right will. And well, it was a lot of fun for me. I wish uh, I miss you being down in Florida. I don't get to talk to you that much, but it's cool when you do get up here. So, and hopefully we can do this again next time. Cool. Thanks, man. All right. to the Hell on Wheels podcast with your host, Jason Holman. Thank you for listening. Remember to rate us on iTunes. 